morning, church. It's good to have you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 3. We have verse 22. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask uh, now that you soften our hearts and open our eyes and open our ears so we can come to your word ready and, and willing to learn from its pages. We ask that your spirit would move in our hearts your spirit would teach us, mold us, and move us. It is in Jesus' name. Again, John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose among some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, wit bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is uh, of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness that what to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Father in heaven, again we ask, that your word be made clear to us, the teaching of your spirit, that we would hear the resounding truth that your son 
came to save us. Teach that to our hearts. That it be the one and only thing that we hold to that we maintain through all life all life's circumstances. It is in Jesus' name. So today, we see another one of uh, what I've mentioned the last two weeks of, of, of John, our author's uh, sort of interjections of his of kind of his own teaching. Uh, so, what makes the gospel writers uh, kind of unique and more than just retellers of the story is these little points where where they weave the story together, not just with what Jesus does and says, but also with kind of the other things that are happening, trying to kind of steer us along as we encounter the life and ministry of Jesus. Right? Somebody could have just gone, I'm only going to write what Jesus says and what Jesus does. And that would have been, been good, obviously. But John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are also teachers, right? So they're teaching alongside of what they're recounting Jesus doing. Last week and the week before, as we looked at verses 22 or 23 to 25 of chapter 2, I said that's the same thing. John gives us this kind of extra bit of information that's not vocalized or said, but it kind of helps steer us to understand what is going to come next in the story of Nicodemus. Today, we're going to get a repetition. So what Jesus taught us last week in, in the passage from last week as he as he encounters Nicodemus and talks with Nicodemus. John is going to say really the same thing. He's just going to say it maybe in a more condensed way, and he's going to clarify it for us. So like the disciples, one of the things that the disciples do for us in the story development is, is when the disciples come to Jesus and, and get kind of that last little bit of teaching, they're, they're clarifying for us what we need to take away from the story. Right? This is what we see earlier on in the story when, when Jesus cleanses the temple and, uh, and the disciples, oh, they realize, they remember that, that zeal for, my, for your house will consume me. That, oh, that, that teaches me something about you. So this is what we're supposed to take away. The same thing is going to be true here with John. That John is going to kind of clarify for us, or not really clarify because I think it's pretty clear in John 3, or earlier on in John 3 maybe, but he's just going to simplify. He's going to condense it down to just one verse. So let's let's kind of work our way through this. This is this is a kind of a full story, right? There's there's the setup of the of the situation. There's the tension in the situation, and then there's the resolution. So let's look at the setup, verses 22 to 24. It says after this, meaning after his encounter with Nicodemus, and after the the, the beautiful John 3:16 to, to 21. Jesus, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, really, which is crossing the Jordan from where they were, went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, what we'll learn in chapter 4, verse 2, which we'll, we'll, we'll look at probably next week, uh, is that Jesus doesn't actually baptize. He, he, he commissions, basically commissions his disciples to baptize, but part of Part of the, the rabbi-disciple relationship is if a rabbi kind of commissions you to do something, then, then it's kind of in the rabbis. It's, it's, it's because of the rabbi, and so therefore you kind of give credit. So that's why it seems like it's saying Jesus is baptizing them. 
We'll learn in a minute that Jesus doesn't. So he's re- he remains there and he's, he's with them and they're baptizing. And John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem because waterfalls, water is plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. And then we're told that John hasn't been imprisoned yet. Outside of story development, there's not a lot that's going on here. This is just setting the stage for us. This is the, this is the set design as we're watching a play, right? This is the, the table and the chairs that are going to be vital to the story development. This is exactly what's happening. I think on a basic level, that's, that's very true. But I think there's this kind of additional reality that we have to just, we have to just maybe see just a little bit. And I don't know if I want to overemphasize it so I, I kind of take this with a little caution here, but John, in a lot of ways, represents for us the coming to a conclusion of the old way of thinking. John the Baptist, not John our author. John the Baptist, who we're talking about here, Jesus and John, are, are he's kind of this representative of the old way of thinking under the law. And Jesus is going to, as we see in this in this setup, as we see in the story development, Jesus is going to start to diverge from John, and their ministries become different and distinct. And this happens over the, the, the topic of baptism. This happens over the topic of baptism. What John is doing when he baptizes is fundamentally different than what we as Christians today do when we baptize. John is baptizing and, and it's maybe I, sh- I shouldn't say it's 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 huge and massive, but it's a very fine a very fine point maybe, but it's an important point to distinguish. John is baptizing still under the old old understanding of repentance and purification. This is what we see in the conversation that comes up in just a second. They're, they're going to have a conversation about purification, which is about baptism. So when we look at the Old Testament law and we think about salvation under the Old Testament law, one of the mistakes that we often make that is really a very critical mistake is that we think the law in itself is the sufficient act of salvation. And maybe we don't say that, but that's kind of how we understand it. So when we look at the law, we go, okay, I sin, I steal. And and and. Punishment for stealing is death. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. God says you can have everything. Don't eat the fruit of this one tree. It's mine. And what do Adam and Eve do? They eat the fruit. He says, if you eat it, you will surely die. And this is a a, a, a beautiful picture of what all sin is. All sin, the wage of sin is death. So I lie, or I steal, or I whatever, and I my wage is death. Part of us thinks that what the Old Testament law then does for us is that if I go and I take a lamb and I make a sacrifice to God as a, as a, as a, a repentant sacrifice or a sacrifice to cover that particular sin, that has made me in balance right, with God. That that's the system that God set up. But if we look at the, if we look at, at the fall in Genesis chapter 3 and what comes after that, what God is actually doing is he's not saying that this animal is a sufficient sacrifice. He's saying, my mercy is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. The Old Testament law is not about the animals. It's about God's mercy and grace. It's God's mercy that allows you to take a breath right now. 
Because each and every one of us, however good we think we are, or however horrible we know we are, each one of us is at an imbalance with God. My sin demands my death. Every single one of them. Now we could argue about every single one of them deserving death. That seems that seems kind of overly harsh, but remember, we're dealing with a perfect and pure God. Every one of my sins deserves death. The scales are not even close because of just one sin. So every single breath you take, every single opportunity you receive to turn to the Lord is a merciful gift that God has given you, allowing you to continue to live even though you deserve death. And it's in this mercy that the sacrificial system can even arise where we're going to start to see grace. Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, they sin against God, and they're not immediately struck dead. Mercy. They hide from God in the wilderness, which is really quite silly. God finds them, confronts them in their sin, and covers them, covers them with the skin of a sacrifice animal. Again, symbolic for all sacrifice to come. But this sacrifice, again, does not create balance in itself. This is why in places like Hosea and other of the, New, other of the Old Testament prophets, we see, things, we see God saying things like, your sacrifices are worthless. Don't bring them to me. I want to spit them out of my mouth. Because it's not about the sacrifice. It's about the grace that God is bestowing upon his people. But what happens in the Old Testament is all representative of the action of God's grace. And what changes, fundamentally changes, in grace in the New Testament is that now we don't rely on an unseen grace given to us that's represented in the sacrifices. But now we rely on the grace that is manifest in the Lord and Savior Jesus on the cross. And what we say when we baptize is that we baptize in the New Testament as Christians. We baptize not a baptism of repentance, which is what John is baptizing. He is saying, you turn from your sinful ways and are turning back to the Lord. Jonathan Edwards calls it affections. Paul is, this is what Paul is talking about in Romans. How when in our old lives, our affections, the things that we desire are sin and death. But when Christ comes in and, and reconciles me to the Father, justifies me to the Father, my affections change, my desires change from things of sin and death to the things of God, to the things of the Lord. And I am fundamentally changed. But in the old way of thinking, in John's way of thinking, Baptism is a baptism of repentance, a turning away from the old to the new. Not a, not a change in who I am, in the makeup of who I am as a person. And so this is the baptism that John brings, and it's also the same baptism that, that causes those, I think, at Antioch to not have the Spirit because they don't have the right baptism, because they misunderstand what it is. And I think many of us Christians, this is what we think when we think of as baptism that we're being baptized in a baptism of repentance. And while repentance is part of our life as a follower of Christ, it is not what we're being baptized into when we are baptized now. 
Rather, it's a baptism into the death as we go down into the water and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace has moved from being symbolically on on many sacrifices to being complete and perfect in the Christ sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice that, by the way, now makes us in balance with God, which is astounding. The sacrifices that we would have participated in before, before Christ in the Old Testament system, don't bring us into balance. We always have to rely on God. But Christ comes in, sacrifices completely and wholly on the cross, and then says, I will take all that makes you imbalanced upon me. He doesn't say, I will share it. He doesn't say, I will pay it. He says, I will take it. It is Christ on the cross. And so therefore we are free in a new way, right? And this is where John and Jesus start to diverge. Jesus is going to baptize, and we could, we could question all day long on what the baptism looked like for Jesus before his death and resurrection, because it's kind of confusing, but it's nowhere in the Bible does it really give us an answer until after Jesus is dead and raised. So Jesus is doing something different than John is, and so there's this divergence, this this changing of direction. Jesus is baptizing over here. His ministries are now in two different places. So that's the scenario. Then the tension. It says now in verse 25, now a, a, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Number one, Normal, everyday behavior for people within a rabbi's circle. Part of being a a disciple of a rabbi is to have continuous discussion about the things that we believe. Most most non-disciple people, most non-vocational disciples, maybe how I should say, aren't going to have these conversations on a regular basis. But it sure seems like Jesus is constantly having discussions with the Pharisees and the Jews and all these Same thing is happening with John. So it's just a normal discussion. There's no tension. There's no nothing else. It's just a normal discussion arises between some of John's disciples, bearing in mind John's baptism as a baptism of repentance, and some of, in this, in this Jew, which is probably a Pharisee, but John calls the Pharisees Jews, because he's much more removed from the situation, over purification. And this is literally all we get about the conversation. And that's literally where we must stop because it's an endless it's an endless rabbit hole to try to figure out what this conversation was actually about. All this is doing is setting up for us what comes with the conversation between John and these men. It says in verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, and to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to. So here's what's happening. All of the people who were at one point coming to John for baptism, repenting and being baptized, are now not coming to John, but are rather going to Jesus. And naturally, John's disciples are like, well, this is kind of our livelihood. If a church came across the street and all of a sudden all of you would go there, people might ask the question, right? It's natural. It's normal. I'm not saying that we should question that. Maybe that guy's better. Jesus is better. Continue with the analogy there, but so that's what's happening. So they they come to they come to John. They're like, wait, what? So how should we treat this? What should we do? 
And so then John, John goes in a kind of a different direction. He doesn't, he doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't try to say, no, no, go get him. Don't, don't, don't let him go to Jesus. No, no, no. Because who is John? John is the witness in the wilderness. John is the one who has come to make the, the path straight and make and prepare the way for the Lord. And now here's the Lord. So John says, John says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. I think what my mind immediately goes to is Job, right? And Job is like, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job has all this stuff. He's an extremely wealthy man. When you read the first chapter of Job and it says all the cows and all the donkeys and all the, I don't think there's even cows and donkeys, all the things that Job has, basically what that means, Job is filthy, filthy rich. And then he loses everything. His kids, his, his flocks and herds, his house, his health. And he's sitting there, he's scraping himself with, with pot shards. And his, his friends are like, curse God and die already. Everything has been taken from me. And what Job says is how we should always live our lives. Everything that I had was first given to me by God. I don't own it. I don't deserve it. It is not mine to begin with. So if God chooses to take it away from me, it is his choice. And John is saying the same thing here. He says, look, I had a ministry, and it was great, and I was popular, and people were talking about me, and that's wonderful. But my job on earth was never to be popular and cool. My job was always to tell you about the one to come after me. And so now that that task is done, it is completely in God's right to take the successful ministry away from you. That's a hard pill to swallow for John. But it sure seems that John has his head on right. You yourselves bear witness. He, then he explains it, verse 28, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. He is the guy we're talking about. But I have been sent before him. Verse 29, the, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his, this joy that is mine, this joy of mine, is now complete. John says, I'm not the groom, I'm the best man. Unless you're going to a weird wedding. Nobody at the reception has ever said, why is the, be the groom the center of attention? Or the bride and then the groom because of the, because of the groom. Nobody's ever looked at the best man and gone, poor guy, nobody cares about him anymore. Because that's not the point of the wedding. John's like, my, my popularity was never for me to be popular. The best man's job is to stand there, to give the rings without dropping them, and then go, yeah, they're married. That's what John does. Yeah, he's here. Great. I'm done. He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. You all have ministries. Maybe not vocationally like myself. But you all have ministries. 
You all have things to do. You were all called by God to, to, to witness to the world, to tell people about the gospel, to tell people about what Christ has done for them. John's ministry and our ministries should look very similar. And that the only reason why we're here is to point to Christ. We should always be ready and frankly excited when our ministry is to come to a conclusion because we've done what we were supposed to do. John says he must increase, but I must decrease. And what's really interesting is this is almost the last time we see John the Baptist in John's gospel because John is going to decrease. His importance is no longer there for us. He's here at the beginning in these first three chapters to, to shout to us about who this character Jesus is. And we're extremely excited about it, right? It's exciting. John's not done because the, resolu- the, 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 the resolution has not come yet. We have, we have the scenario. We have the tension. Look, all, your, all these guys are going over there now. Well, what's, what's the solution? The solution is not, it's not just that John will decrease but it's that Christ will increase. And so that's what John is going to do. One last time for us. Let me increase for you Jesus standing. And let me repeat, in my own words, what Jesus says in verses 16 to 21. He says, He who comes from above is above all. Jesus comes from above, from from heaven. And he is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways. That's John. He who comes from heaven is above all. Again, that's Jesus. He wants to repeat himself because we're thick-skulled and we sometimes don't hear it. Jesus is it. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. The light comes into the world, as Jesus says last week. We don't receive the light because our works are evil. He proclaims who he is. Jesus tells us what he's going to do. I'm going to die, I'm going to raise, I'm going to rescue you. And yet, we plug our ears. We say, it's not, not yet. A few more months, a few more years. Soon I will give myself to you. Not quite yet. Whoever receives his testimony, Jesus' testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is truth. Again, let's go back to the Old Testament for just a second. The Old Testament screams at the top of its lungs the coming of Jesus in the mercy and grace of our great God that is going to be manifest and seen in the the God-man Christ. This is what we believe when we believe what Jesus teaches us. This is what we hold to when we look at what Jesus says in verses 16 to 21. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When we believe Christ, we believe that God is true. And that's the most truthful thing that we can believe of God. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Jesus tells us what God wants us to hear. And he does so, we're told, for he 
gives the Spirit without measure. One of the most comforting things that I think I I, I think about as, as a person who stands in front of other people and talks a lot is that the Spirit that dwelt in Christ is the Spirit that dwells in me. And even though I mess up all the time, say foolish things in foolish ways, I trust the Spirit will do whatever it needs to do to get to your heart. Jesus lived his life not on his own, not doing what he wanted, but doing the will of the Father at the movement of the Spirit, the same Spirit that moves you and I. Verse 35. Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Amen. And whoever does not believe, or excuse me, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John is quite simply just repeating what Jesus just said. He did not come into this world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. You are out of balance with your God. But Christ has come to put you in balance. Christ has come to save you, not to condemn you. You've done enough to do that yourself. He has come and freely offered himself. He has come and freely offered to take your sin, to take what gives you shame, to take all of the things that bring you down and crush you at night when you think about how worthless and broken and sinful you are. He will take it upon himself onto the cross and pay the debt and give you new life. John does something really interesting in, in some of his word changing. He says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And one of the things that can get maybe dicey as we talk about the work of Christ is that we maybe feel like we discount what happens to us. After all, the Bible talks a great deal about how I should act and look and do but so often we get, the, we get the cart in front of the horse, right? We look at our action. We say, if, if only I could get to a certain point. If I could just clean myself up just a little bit, to, just to hear. If I could stop doing this or that or the other thing, then God would save me. And, and it's only until I do that that God He doesn't love me until I'm at least somewhat what he wants me. That's not what the gospel message teaches us. The gospel message teaches us that, that God himself became incarnate, became a man, came into this world and lived among us. Lived beside people just like us. Sinners condemned to hell. So that he could save us. He doesn't ask us to get to a certain point, then he'll save us. He comes and he is standing right next to you in the muck in the mire and he's reaching out his hand and he's saying, I'm ready to save you now. 
And it's after this. It's because of this. It's in response to this that our lives change. It's because Christ has saved me that I even can have new affection. That I even can go from desiring only things of sin and death to desiring the things of the Spirit. So because John is repeating himself, let me repeat myself in closing. There are many people in this room today who love the Lord Jesus and know him as their Lord and Savior. And we collectively rejoice. There are also many in this room who don't. Who are caught up in the brokenness of who they are. Who are caught up in, and I'm just, I'm not there. I'm not good enough. He can't love me. And I'm going to extend to you the invitation that's been extended to all of us. His hand is there waiting for you. His death has already been done. He's paid for your sins. Reach out and receive him. Because he has come into this world to save you. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we have very little more to say than than thank you. We praise you. You are a God from the very beginning who in your abundant mercy in your unknowable grace have come into this world beside us sinners to rescue and to save us. Lord, I ask that your spirit would press hard upon those who do not know Christ as their Savior and convince them of your love, your compassion, Praise your name. It's in Jesus' holy name.